This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. Rose Fox is away this week. On today's show, author George Dorman discusses his new book, Superfans, Into the Heart of Obsessive Sports Fandom. Then PW's VP of Business Development, Carl Pritzkat, will tell us about PW's upcoming PubTech Connect conference. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD BookScan. So I'm going to jump right into the fiction. We've got a few here, quite a few stars, uh, some big books at number six. Night Moves, an Alex Delaware novel by Jonathan Kellerman. This is uh, what we say an exceptionally plotted 33rd mystery featuring L.A. psychologist Alex Delaware. We say the lead's bantering friendships lightens an otherwise grim story, and newcomers will find this easy entry point into this long-running series. And then we jump to number 16, The Kremlin's Candidate by Jason Matthews. This is also a starred review, and we start off a review uh, with the next CIA director could well be U.S. Admiral Audrey Rowland, a mole working for the Russians, and bestseller Matthews' stellar conclusion to his Red Sparrow trilogy. Uh, and we say at the end, the March release of the film version of the first series of the Red Sparrow, starring Jennifer Lawrence, is bound to give this book a boost. So that's at number uh, 16. At number 17, we have White Houses by Amy Bloom. And this is by Bloom, who's a finalist for the National Book Award for Come to Me. She retells, or at least brings to life, Eleanor Roosevelt's life through the eyes of her lover, Lenora, uh, Lorena Hickok, uh, in what is what we say is a fiery historical novel. We say, cleverly structured through reminiscences that slowly build in intimacy, Bloom's passionate novel beautifully renders the hidden love of one of America's most guarded first ladies. Uh, then we have Surprise Me at number 18 by Sophie Kinsella. And we say Kinsella's heartfelt latest concerns the secrets that are unearthed after Daddy's girl Sylvie Winter and her husband Dan agree to continually surprise one another in an effort to make the most of their lives. We say that Sylvie matures along with the narrative. What at first seems like a light novel about familiar woes turns into a deeper story about trust, family, and perception. And finally, at 19, we have Poison, John Lescroat. In best-selling Lescroat's satisfying 20th Dismiss Hardy novel, the San Francisco attorney who's recovering from two gunshot wounds and looking forward to retiring soon can resist defending a former client, Abby Jarvis, against a murder case. We say, though, the final reveal won't shock veteran genre readers. Uh, Les Croort does a good job of balancing the whodunit plotline with well-developed portrayals of both major and secondary characters. And then moving on to nonfiction lists, we only have three. Um, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, 
Science, Humanism, and Progress, at number two by Steven Pinker. Pinker is the Harvard psychology professor who defends progressive ideals against contemporary critics, pundits, and cantankerous philosophers and populist politicians to demonstrate how far humanity has come since enlightenment. Uh, we say his sober, lucid, and meticulously researched vision of human progress is heartening and important. At number three, it's a game guide, The Legend of Zelda, Breath of the Wild, the complete official guide, expanded edition. I'm always amazed when these books uh, that are that accompany video games jumps on the bestseller list, but you know, obviously people are are buying them up. Finally, at number six, the last on our nonfiction bestseller list, All the Pieces Matter, The Inside Story of The Wire by Jonathan Abrams. And we say here, uh, lovers of HBO's The Wire rejoice. Uh, Abrams delivers a comprehensive study of what goes into creating an acclaimed TV show. And so that's what we have uh, on the bestseller list. Next up, George Dorman takes us into the world of sports fandom. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Joanne Littman, and I'm the author of That's What She Said, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Rose Fox is away this week. Today, we've got George Dorman on the line. His new book is Superfans, Into the Heart of Obsessive Sports Fandom. Hello, George. So glad you could join us. Oh, thank you for having me. So first, tell us, uh, what exactly is a superfan? Well, it's somebody who has sort of given up a large part of their identity uh, to, to, the, to the pursuit or the interest of a, of a specific team. Yeah, there's actually a test in my book you can take where you can get a score. It was created by a, a psychologist who studies fans. But generally speaking, it is just somebody who, you know, if, if someone says, oh, what's George Dorman about? And their their immediate answer is, oh, he is a huge fan of Phil and this team. That means a large part of your identity is devoted to it. And, and that probably means you're a super fan. All right. So um, I, I, I'm, I'm going to just go out on a limb here to say uh, you, 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 know, you probably took on the subject that perhaps you might have a little super fandom in you. So if I were going to use that, George Dorman is a fill in the blank. What would you do? Yeah, so George Dorman is an obsessive sports fan when it comes to the to the U.S. men's national soccer team. There's oh. sort of I love soccer. Yeah, there's sort of I love soccer, and then there's this sort of mix of patriotism that exists there, and it is the thing that I am just just you know I'm I'm a super fan of, and I, I it's something that I put I put games on my family schedule so my wife knows those are my days. Don't bother with me. Um, you know I devour content about that team so yes that's that is my my weakness my passion would be the u.s men's national soccer team all right well i want to talk about your book in just a minute but how did you become a uh how did you become a fan of of uh, the men's soccer yeah i think it's something that kind of ratcheted up with me and this is something that happens with a lot of people is at a moment in transition they often will get more connected with with a team so for me uh, when I graduated from college and moved to Los Angeles, I was kind of looking for some social groups. I ended up connecting with a, a group of guys who all played soccer together. We played. They were all huge fans uh, of soccer in general, but especially the U.S. team. So I sort of became, ratched, that ratcheted up my fandom. So there's two things there. One is the, the moment of transition, which is often when people ramp up their fandom. And two, 
connecting with the social group and that also forces people at times to ramp up their fandom. So I am definitely an example of what you'll see in my book from other fans. So tell me, uh, since we're on the subject of uh, U.S. men's soccer, what, 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 what is a typical fan other than yourself? If you were to just look at one uh, uh, without looking in the mirror. Sure. You know, they're probably a member of a group called American Outlaws, which is the big U.S. men's national team supporters group. And they probably go to events in their community supported by or, or run by the the American Outlaws. Um, you know, they probably have jerseys and, and different gear that they bought. You know, the red, white, and blue uh, tend to probably be a pretty patriotic person. And they also, because the U.S. games are kind of big events that occur randomly, they will often, um, you know, travel a lot to those things. So they would travel, you know, overseas to Mexico, Central America to watch games. So given that so many of the U.S. men's soccer teams are of comprised of at least different nationalities, would this fan group be also diverse in nationality? Um, you know, I think it, it actually tends to skew white, and there's been some articles written about that, that it's not the most diverse group. Um, you know, it was started by some guys, I think they were in Colorado, so, no, it's not actually the most diverse group, but it's becoming more diverse. Um, it's certainly diverse with there's a lot of women in, in the group. Um, so it's not uh, it's not exclusive like maybe some other groups that I write about in my book. But, yeah, generally speaking, it probably doesn't reflect as much of America's melting pot as it should. So I do want to talk about other sports in the U.S., but when, when one thinks of sports fandom uh, in in the U.S., I, I think simply because it's, I, I think, the most popular sport, people are going to think automatically football, especially also given the, the, the whole idea of tailgate parties. I mean, this is both college and, and, uh, and pro. Um, can you tell us a little bit about fandom in pro football or college? Yeah, you know, football, I think you really hit on something, which is football does seem to have a really, really passionate, strong fan bases, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons. One is I think that kids are often indoctrinated into a, a certain fandom of a certain team in football, maybe before, maybe where they aren't in, say, the NBA or Major League Baseball. You know, there's a sort of regionality to football. So, for example, you know, a kid who grows up in Alabama is probably going to be introduced to either Alabama fandom or Auburn fandom at a young age. You know, think of a of a kid growing up in Wisconsin and how he's going he or she is going to be surrounded by Green Bay Packers fans and and those events. And then also football games are big events. You know, baseball has so many games. The NBA has so many games. You don't usually circle a game on the calendar and plan for it and create social events around it. But football, because it's, you know, primarily a weekend, single, one day a week, weekend sport, lends itself to big um, events, you know, to, to big social groups gathering. So I, I think for, for those reasons, the early indoctrination, the sort of regionality, and then also the events that these games become, you know, football fandom in general does tend to be uh, you know, sort of more ratcheted up. Yeah, you've got uh, 16 games, eight home, eight away, uh, unless you make the uh, playoffs um, and, and go further. So there really is, uh, you know, quite a bit of time to plan an event. Um, 
t- tell me a little bit about let's let's just dip in a little bit to some of the people you met and and let's for right now just stick with football a little bit since we're on the subject. Yeah, one of the groups that I loved uh, to profile was a group called the Viking World Order. And this was a group started by two guys and, and run primarily by a single guy who Diggs Garza is his name, David Diggs Garza. And he, he got out of the military, uh, the army, and was a little bit lost. And what he realized or sort of subconsciously realized was that he needed more structure in his life. He had it in the military, but he didn't have it when he got out and he was a little lost. So he, another guy, created the Viking World Order. It's a fan group of about 200 Vikings fans. And it has a very uh, clear hierarchy. They actually give out the ranks. In the, there, there's, there's divisions. There's ranks. He is a five-star general in the Vikings World Order. There are lieutenants, colonels. They actually give out rank insignia, like you would get silver lieutenant's bars if you earned that rank. And there's a clear way that people are supposed to behave, initiation, and things like that. And this was something that, you know, for him, it brought order to his life. And what you see again and again with the people that I profile, these super fans, is that often their fandom, this, this real obsession that they have, is born out of a, a void in their lives, a need. And with David, he's a great example of that void existed and his fandom filled it. So let's talk about David and, and, and if you can, a little bit about that void. I mean, uh, this was one of the examples I was going to ask you to talk about in any case was this exactly with the Vikings and, and this militaristic fan group in a sport that does have a, a, a military presence, or at least you see in halftime military marches sponsored by military. And, and so tell a little bit about this, this person who formed this. You know, David had, yeah, he, he's, um, he, he's a really normal guy. You know, you meet him and you don't, you know, if you saw him in costume, with this very elaborate uh, sort of get up with a helmet with Viking horns on it and things, you, you know, like a lot of people, you'd look at him and you'd say, gosh, you know, this, he's a, he's a little odd, right? He's what's wrong with this guy. Or um, you'd think he was mean or something. Cause he kind of, it's a very menacing look, but he's a really sweet guy, you know, grew up in St. Paul and he, he works at halfway houses for the mentally disabled and he's really good at it because he's just caring and really generous with himself and his time. And he has his, his clients, so to speak, over to his house to watch Vikings games. He's very gregarious and, and, you know, he, he just is somebody who really needs to be part of a group. You know, we have a natural biological propensity to group. We used to group to survive, right? To, to hunt and gather. Uh, we don't need to do that anymore. So more and more we're grouping around sports teams. And David, you know, Diggs Garza is, is a perfect example of somebody who just, he was lost without his group. And then he found his group and he's so happy. And I mean, you know, he has a great uh, quote in the book where he says that he, he makes a Mr. Rogers reference where he says, I just got lost in the, in the tunnel of make-believe. And mm. It's it's so perfect because you would say, well, he's out of touch with reality. Then he's like, no, no, but this is just this this group. This it, it, it's both a diversion and a necessity for him. But really, what's important is he feels connected to people, uh, and that's something that he really needs. And the people who've joined this, how how would he? I, I mean, would people just write to him, or would they see them out uh, uh, in the parking lot outside a home game? 
they would be tailgating. They would see these guys, you know, elaborately dressed, and they would then they would go up to them and say, "Oh my God, this is so cool!" You know, they're all everyone's all dressed up. They get a tattoo that you can you can design it yourself, but it has to say VWO. That's how you're in the group, and so people would see these tattoos that they have and think, "Oh, that's cool." And and they might also see somebody be initiated. They have a very uh, a very elaborate ritual for initiating someone into the group. They actually have a wooden kneeler, like you might find in a in, in a Catholic church in a confessional mm-hmm. and, and someone kneels on it and they have a four foot long sword and they have something that they say and they touch the person on the shoulder. They took it out of the movie Braveheart was the, where they took that from. And so people see this and they're like, Oh my God, this is cool. I want to be a part of this. And so then they get on sort of the, the, the list of maybe, um, you know, potential recruits. And then they just have to do things. It's, it's, the line is make it important in your life. Make the Viking world order important in your life. And that might mean going to events. That might mean doing charity work on behalf of the Viking world order, which they're really engaged in charity work. It's being there at the tailgaters at other events. So really it's it's show how much you want to be part of this group and we'll let you into the group. It reminds me, a neighbor of mine in New Jersey would invite me to uh, uh, Jets games and he had a uh, a group of about maybe 50 or 60 people, and they would bring their military vehicles, uh, people movers, amphibian uh, uh, vehicles, and, and a stage where they would have performances, but they would have a, a spot in the parking lot where we, they, they would form a U, and you would be, it, it, it didn't, wasn't quite as, as ornate as, as this person, as the Viking one, but uh, there was that military aspect of it. Um, one was, of course, a, a truck that had just kegs on it. <laughs> Um, <laughs> what does football mean to them? And, and, and maybe the other way, what, what do these fans mean to the players, to the organization? For them, you know, I, I asked David that question. I said, sort of like, are you a fan of the Vikings or are you a fan of your group of the Viking world order? And he said, well, I'm kind of a fan of both. He almost thinks of them as separate. Now, of course, the Viking World Order wouldn't exist without having a this team to to mm-hmm. build around and, and root for, but and you know a shared interest. But it's really not about the team. It's about the group and in, in the connectivity of the group and the events and on and the order that that brings to their lives. So I think you know they. They, it's funny, you know, if you if you said you can't root for the Vikings, but you can, uh, you know, all become part of a sewing club, they might end up doing it because the the group is so important to them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but in terms of what they mean to the team itself, you know, these fans, some of the Viking World Orders guys have ended up on season tickets, like their picture. Um, you know, it's, it's a group that the, the team used when they were trying to get a new stadium. They would have that group. They would send out email blasts and say, we need to be here to lobby this, this legislator. So it does serve a purpose for the team, these diehard fans. Um, but I, 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 you know, like most fan team relationships, it's mostly one sided. Uh, the fans are really the ones who are doing all of these things without the team sometimes even knowing they do. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors. And... 
conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with George Dorman, author of Superfans, Into the Heart of Obsessive Sports Fandom. And we're talking about the relationship that uh, sports fans have with a team. And perhaps the team may or may not have with them. But I want to talk about uh, the complexity of fandom. You know, you talk with a woman who's a fan of the Seattle Seahawks. She's a super fan who's also a domestic abuse survivor. And in the wake of a controversy surrounding uh, the team's draft uh, of a player who's accused of beating his girlfriend, she says she kind of dismisses it and says, this was the media over-dramatizing it. Can you talk a little bit about it? I'm just using that as an example, but as, as the complexity about fandom. Well, yeah, Wendy Bromley is... Um she's a really interesting figure in the book because she, as you said, was a domestic abuse survivor. She's a recovering uh, drug addict and really her fandom, you know, took the place of both her relationship that she was in when she got out of that and probably has it at times sort of stood in for her, her addiction. You know, they don't, clinical psychologists don't like you to use the term addicted when you talk about fans, they like obsession. And I think she's not addicted. She is obsessed though. And, and she's, but she's, you know, the fandom has really helped her get through some, some tough parts in her life. But see, what happens with fans is our teams aren't always sort of loyal to us. And we have no control over that. So, you know, with Wendy, when her favorite team used their, their first pick in the, in a, the NFL draft a couple of years ago to take someone who had admitted to domestic assault, he'd been found guilty. He, he pled guilty to it. And so here she is. She's rooting for this team. It truly takes up so much of her life, her identity. She can't let it go. So what does she do? You know, she, she started making excuses for the team. Oh, maybe he really didn't do it. Oh, maybe the team, the team investigated. He's probably a good guy. The media blew it out of proportion. This is all untrue. What she's doing is protecting her identity. Her identity took a jolt when this team drafted somebody who committed the very crime that she had been a victim of. But she couldn't let go uh, of the team because it just was unfathomable for her to go forward without having that as part of her life. Um, And that's really there's it's a really interesting dynamic that exists between fans because it is a one sided relationship. You know, if I quit being a fan of the U.S. men's national team tomorrow, they're never going to know. It's not going to impact them. And that is true of all fans. But we don't want to believe that. We don't want to believe that we're inconsequential. We don't want to believe that we have no control in this relationship, that it's completely one-sided. So one thing we do is often manufacture ways to sort of be more connected or feel like we have control. And Wendy's a good example example of this. At one point, she created an online petition that she felt was needed to protect one of the Seattle Seahawks running backs from having to talk to the media when he didn't want to. Uh, she felt like, you know, we were contributing to his anxiety. So she needed to stand up for him. You know, this is a fan feeling like they're doing something to help their team. And you see that more and more, sometimes in small ways, like people with superstitions wearing their favorite T-shirt saying, I got to wear this because it'll help my team win. In other big ways, like people attacking other fan bases or attacking opposing players on social media, things like that. It's all these fans who lack control trying to sort of, feel as if they have some semblance of control. 
So I want to talk a little bit about just slipping into a little bit of the darker side, uh, potential darker sides of fandom. I mean, of course, you know, uh, we have Bill Buford's book, Among the Thugs, which he wrote about Manchester United soccer fans, which I'm, I know you know, uh, and I'm sure read. Um, and I, I just want to talk about, well, first of all, two things, maybe the difference between American fans and fans from elsewhere, say the UK or Italy, if there's a difference. But I then want to talk about the the mob, uh, uh, what happens in groups to these fans, if that is something that you explored in your book. Sure. I think, generally speaking, we are not, American fans are not different from, say, your, people in Europe or other parts of the country. Like, how we become fans is basically the same, which is we get it from our parents or a sibling or, or a some part of the community that we live in. Um, the impact of fandom on us, like how it impacts our self-esteem, uh, particularly in men, uh, is no different here than it is in Europe. And, th and there's been the psychologists who study fans closely have done studies abroad as well as in the States. And the, and the data backs this up, that we're not that different from, from those individuals. And also, again, generally speaking, they found that sport fans, sports fans are not more violent than your average person. Of course, these incidents get a lot of attention. You know, if, if a San Francisco Giants fan gets beat up by a bunch of Dodgers fans outside of a stadium, that is going to get more attention than the fact that, you know, a similar assault occurred six miles away in, you know, in Los Angeles, just on some street. So we do, it does get more attention than, than you're seeing. But again, sports fans aren't necessarily more violent than people. But what you're getting at, I think, which is a, is a sort of a concerning issue, is, is an issue of tribalism and what happens when these groups get together. You know, I talk about the Viking World Order, and generally speaking, they're a great group who does great things, but they certainly had incidents where they've gotten into fights with Eagles fans. Um, a group I write about, the, the Timbers, the Portland Timbers, the Timbers Army, their big, strong fan group in its early years would get into fights with fan groups um, of opposing teams. So we do see this tribalism that occurs, and um, it, it is something that is, you know, truly a part of fandom. As much as they've they've tried to tamp it down in Europe, as much as we do here in the states, and trying to, uh, you know, prevent it from happening, it does exist, and it exists because these teams, the relationship people have with these teams, is so strong. They they feel like they have to protect it. They have to you know, bash people who are opposing viewpoints or opposing teams. So it is a very natural reaction, uh, even biological reaction to what happens when you're uh, closely tied to a group. Um, and it's, and it's one of these things that as much as we work to stop it, it does exist in fandom everywhere. And of course, we have the uh, Philadelphia Eagles fans who, uh, in the last several, uh, you know, have been a few instances of punching horses, and and therefore people all know um, in the football world that what an Eagles fan is, or at least the stereotype, and also perhaps the arrogance of the Patriots fan, uh, and maybe the flamboyance, maybe that's not the right word, or like the the costumes of the Oakland Raiders, uh, or formerly Oakland of the, of the Raiders. <laughs> Um, how, how do these get developed? I think, you know, people ask me about Eagles fans a lot and sort of saying, are they different? You know, are they, why are they so, you know, over the top? Um, I think a couple things. One, you know, 
I would guess that Philadelphia Eagles fans are indoctrinated at young ages. I have a chapter on that in my book. And, you know, if you're looking for someone who become a super fan, one way to make them a super fan is to start introducing them to fandom at five years old. And because one thing that fandom does is it, is it introduces children often to hate, which, you know, children are not born knowing how to hate. So they have to learn how to hate. And one way they learn is, you know, by dad or mom or brother or aunt or uncle saying, you know, we're Eagles fans here and we hate the Giants, the New York Giants, right? Well, that kid with, with kids want to see the world as black as white. That's just what they want to do. They want to say, they want to divide things cleanly. Is this a girl street or a boy street? You know, that kind of a thing. So when you give them that, when you say black and white, we are Eagles and we hate Giants or we are good Giants fans are bad. They grasp that with two hands. And they don't understand nuance. They don't understand that a Giants fan might be a really good person and you, and, and you don't have to hate them. No, you hate them, right? And so in these fan bases where kids are indoctrinated at a really young age, and I, I would certainly put Philadelphia Eagles fans in that category, mm-hmm. um, there is a greater chance that they will you know, learn to hate at a young age and really draw clear lines about who's good and bad and then keep those lines. They grow up with those lines. And so it's tough to unlearn those lines. You know, when I was growing up, I, I, my father went to Notre Dame. And when I was taught at a young age, Notre Dame was good and USC and the people who went to USC, which is its rival team, were bad. I had to unlearn that. I mean, I carried that with me for a long time. And so if you're not willing to unlearn it, to sort of look inside yourself and, and look, you're just going to go with it. And so I think that's what happens with some of these fan bases is, they they learn to hate. They learn who is quote bad, and they and that becomes cemented in their mind. And then they just really act on that throughout their life. Mm. So uh, going back to uh, I think one of the first uh, uh, things we talked about, and it was if uh, we were to fill out a, a, a you know a blank after our name, and one might say you, know, you told about your. Uh, uh, team fandom. Mine would be Mark Fratella. I think many people would say he's a fan of the Montreal Canadiens hockey team. And I'm a hockey fan. Uh, what can you tell a little bit about uh, hockey fans in your experience? Hockey's, um, you know, similar to, let's say, the Green Bay Packers in that, you know, there's that really clear regionality that exists. So, you know, if you're, if you grew up in Edmonton, it is highly unlikely that you're going to become a, uh, you know, a Toronto Maple Leafs fan, let's say, right? right? And there's also, because of the border, there's also that that divide as well. Like, you're not going to grow up a Detroit Red Wings fan or something like that if you're up in Canada. So um, it, it has that regionality that exists. Um, you know, but, but hockey fans don't, at least in my research, didn't exhibit as much of sort of the – it's a way of saying it. They're, they're somewhat politer than uh, – <laughs> than fans of, of, of other sports at different times. Um, and it's surprising, too, because hockey is a violent sport, as we all know. It's, it's a very violent sport. And, and you, you know, you would think some of that would would lead into its fan base. But generally speaking, um, I think because, you know, and this is just me guessing, but because some of the, the gentlemanly aspects of the game, like mm-hmm. players shaking hands at the end of a series and things like that, I think that there there tends that tends to also bleed over into the fans, and so there maybe is a little bit more caution and respect when it comes to that behavior. Yeah, that handshake is something that I've always liked about hockey that that you don't really see in other sports. What 
was it that inspired you to write this book? I just wanted to to better understand fans because I've, I've been a sports writer for 20 years and I and I interacted with fans throughout, had good and bad interactions, and and those interactions only increase sort of with the the explosion of social media. You hear from fans more often when you when you write a story or you do some other piece of work, and you know I've had some extreme interactions where people were you know cursing at me and you know you get death threats after I do investigative stories for Sports Illustrated and things like that. And so I really wanted to understand these people. I don't, I don't sort of believe in just saying, oh, they're, they're crazy or something like that. So for me, it felt like the right thing to do would be to look, get, dig down, talk to, to experts on this. And, and, and most of all, go around the country and talk to these extreme fans. Because, you know, if you understand them in full, then maybe, you know, you won't be as dismissive or, or negative about them. And I, I think what I came away from this really was understanding that all these people that I went around and interviewed who are extreme fans, almost all of them are just really nice people, really who offer, have really positive contributions to society. And they are normal. They have wives or, or husbands and you know, kids and dogs and houses and, and good jobs. And so while they may look on the outside like sort of you know, unhinged in a certain way, they're just normal people. And, and this fandom and the passion that they have is, is filling a need. And so when you look at it that way, when you say, look, they're, they're acting that way because they really need this in their lives. And, and I have to respect that. Um, I, I think for me, at least, it's a, very, it's a much healthier way to view the fans that I interact with. One thing about the book, which we also noted in, your, in our review, is how you, you, you really you interview and portray these people as humans, as these super fans, rather than circus acts. Uh, even though some may 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 have that kind of performance <laughs> exhibitionism in them, was that something you knew you were going to do when you set out to write this? Absolutely, I, I felt like we had gotten to a point where we were, tr- you know, as we're treating these people as circus freaks, right? Like something comes up on YouTube and we share it around and we say, "Hey, look at this idiot," right? And uh, you know, or we, or we, you know, we, we mock the opposing fans on a, a on a message board or something like that. It just felt like we were not, we, they were, you know, not animals, but something like that. They were, they were not us. We went, we mocked them, we made fun of them, and I, I, I was like, you know, gosh, I've been a fan at my certain points in my life, a super fan of different teams. I'm, I'm now a super fan of the U.S. men's national team. I get yelling at the television and being enjoyed, feeling joy about something. So. It felt to me like the right thing to do was to sort of break that glass that we sort of put these people behind and let readers see how how they are, how they act, what their backgrounds are, and, and most of all, why they're doing this. Why are they putting on a banana suit and dancing, you know, and pulling up their shirt and holding their love handles in the middle of Milwaukee Brewers games? You know, why are they spending tens of thousands of dollars, you know, adorning some ambulance into a Chicago Bears ambulance? Like, if you break all these down, you get to know them. Every one of those, you say, oh, I totally get it now. I totally get why that person is doing it. And you know what? They're also doing no harm. So good for them. We've been talking with George Dorman. You can find his book, Superfans, Into the Heart of Obsessive Sports Fandom, in stores right now. George, this has been a fun talk. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, no, thank you. It's been great. I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW's VP of Business Development, Carl Pritzkat, talks about PW's annual PubTech Connect conference, so stay tuned. Hi, my name is Morgan Jerkins, and I am the author of This Will Be My Undoing, 
living at the intersection of Black, female, feminist, and white America, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today, PW's VP of Business Development, Carl Pritzkett, is here to tell us about PW's PubTech Connect conference. Hello, Carl. So, tell us about this. Well, it is Tuesday, March 6th uh, at NYU's Kimball Center, which is an amazing space on the south side of Washington Square Park. Uh, we did PubTech Connect last year, a year ago, the, the, the first inaugural one at the same space, and it was a huge success. Um, and so uh, we think we've put together an even better program this year, uh, and it's really about shaking up the mold for publishing professionals, uh, people not only at publishing companies but agencies, uh, all across book publishing and media we really try to bring them together and present them with ideas which will challenge their preconceived notions about what uh, their business is, what who their audience is, how to reach their audience, uh, what material to bring to that audience. So, um, and, and as I say, last year we got very high marks from everybody uh, at achieving that, and we're hoping this year to do it even even more, even better. So what's what's really amazing about this is what what you've done with this. The concept, as you've said, is we're talking about publishing. This is for publishers, for editors, for people working in the field. But what you've done is bring in people from other businesses and other companies, many tech um, startups, to to talk about how they've approached their business with uh, the with with the idea of kind of shedding light on you know just for for people to approach publishing in a new way. Right, exactly. And and the, the I think a great example of that are our keynotes. We have an opening keynote in the morning and a closing keynote in the afternoon. And the opening keynote is a conversation between Pamela Paul, who's the editor of the New York Times Book Review. And actually, she's the editor of all book coverage at the Times. And then Sam Dolnick, who's the assistant editor of the entire New York Times. Mm-hmm. And he has been the leader behind much of the Times digital transformation, including uh, properties like uh, The Daily and The New York Times Virtual Reality, uh, 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 the, the Daily 360, and their whole mobile strategy. So to have these two people there talking about how you take one of the oldest, most venerable brands and and you bring it into a, a whole new digitally shaken up marketplace um, and, and then also deal with books specifically in that, uh, I think will be fascinating. Also, they're going to be interviewed by Anand Gerardus, which whose name I'm mangling, but he is an on-air political commentator for NBC News and for MSNBC, and he's also a veteran of the Times and a good friend of both of them. So it's going to be a really fascinating conversation. So you take this these people from what we call sort of an old traditional brand and media, and then at the end of the day, we have a gentleman named Ben Lehrer, who is uh, the CEO and founder of a company called Group Nine Media, which consists of Thrillist, and he's he's the person who founded Thrillist, mm. uh, and then the Dodo, um, which actually his sister founded, and then two other brands, Seeker and now this. So he's created this amazingly successful digital media company uh, from the ground up, 
Um, and then he's going to be interviewed by Jesse Hempel, who's a senior writer for Wired magazine. Um, so it, it, again, we're going to start out with sort of people coming from traditional publishing, traditional brand, how they've made a successful transition. And then we're going to bookend that with somebody who started from scratch, but has created an amazingly powerful media company out of that. And as I say, from all of this come these ideas that are sort of aha moments or, or also challenging moments where you say, okay, this is how we do business in book publishing. This is maybe how we can change and grow and adapt based on these ideas. Well, there's one panel you have here where you have uh, the founder and executive editor of Thunderclap, uh, Dave Cascino, with with Amanda Hester, who uh, a food writer, cookbook writer, who who started Food 52, along with Melissa Bell, who's the publisher of Vox Media, and then uh, Michael Mignano, who's at Anchor. I, um, t- tell about this this panel. I mean, you've got a disparate, you've got Thunderclap, Food 52, Anchor, and and Vox Media. Uh, Bring yeah, we, all kinds of stuff together. Yeah, it's it's really a cool group, and 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 plus the moderator on this is Lisa Chow, who's uh, she hosts the, the the podcast called Startup for Gimlet Media. So and she's got great credentials in terms of working with innovative companies. Um, Dave Casino uh, is the founder and and CEO of Thunderclap, and what what's fascinating about his story is he worked closely with the Occupy Wall Street protests and they had this thing called the human megaphone where if you were in a crowd people would say one thing at the front of the crowd and then other people would repeat it in sort of a structured way so that it could reach hundreds of people where there was no real amplification and so he he being a computer programmer and a, and a very, an entrepreneur thought hey wait a second we could do this with technology with digital technology and so what he's created is a platform where anybody, and, and we see the applications here, especially for authors and for publishers, anybody can go on and use this sort of digital infrastructure he's created to amplify their message. And it's, and it's you know, very easy to use. It, it, it's, it, it's very powerful. And uh, so we think that's an amazing sort of idea, but also has great application with publishing. Amanda Hester, as you say, is well known uh, from her work with the New York Times and with her writing of the New York Times cookbook, but now she's founded this very successful uh, food sort of, not only website, but brand called Food52. So uh, it's going to be great to have Amanda there. Uh, Michael Mignano, uh, the co-founder and CEO of Anchor, is something that's based around sound files and podcasting. And they've created some very easy to use tools for people who want to create their own podcasts. Um, and, and, it, and it's already starting to take off. But again, it's this idea of coming into a marketplace and saying, hmm, something's very popular here. We can, we can create something that more people can use to access this. Um, and then obviously Melissa Bell, who's the publisher at Vox, Vox has done an amazing job of, uh, uh, innovating in the area of content where they have a whole collection of brands that reach deeply into very, uh, passionate, uh, uh, areas of the marketplace from sports to food to, to tech to news all across the thing. So it'll, it'll be really fascinating to have her perspective and have all these people talking with each other again about how, how do you uh, uh, basically look at a marketplace and say, wow, we want to do more. We want to accomplish more than, what, than what's there. How do we do that? What are the first steps to doing that? And then how do you build a whole organization around that? 
So for our listeners who get the print, uh, there's going to be uh, a, a supplement in, I believe, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, in the February yep. 26th issue. But uh, for those of you who don't, they could go directly to our website to, uh, I'm assuming, register there? Yes, absolutely. It, the, actually, the website is pubtechconnect.com. Um, and yes, absolutely. They should go there and, uh, and we would, we would love to have people there. And it's really for people who want to be challenged and who want to participate in a conversation, um, about innovation and, and how publishing can, can grow and change. We have a series of workshops in the afternoon that, that, w- that are designed to be much you know, smaller groups where people can really interact with people ranging from Peter Weingard, who's the VP uh, and Chief Marketing Officer at New York Public Radio, WNYC, which has done amazing stuff in podcasting, and he'll be talking about that. We have uh, some film scouts who'll be talking about book-to-screen work. We have uh, two amazing pioneers in uh, what we call serial fiction or mobile fiction. Um, Molly Barden is the co-founder of Serial Box, which today in the New York Times uh, received one and a half million dollars in funding. Uh, it was announced today. And then uh, Perna Gupta is a founder of uh, an app called Hooked, which has more usage uh, on the iPhone than the Amazon Kindle app does. And it's what they call chat fiction. And and hearing what she had to say about it blew my mind about you know engaging a whole different audience in fiction than than we even have on our radars and and she's done an amazing job in uh, tapping into that so they'll be talking uh, we have another set of workshops that have to do with sort of the workplace ranging from architects at Gensler which is one of the biggest architecture firms in the world and has done amazing work for the Washington Post and for Hachette and for a whole range of media companies we also have uh, an expert on uh, uh, communication tools in the workplace, who's going to talk about, you know, what is the new uh, generation of software that's used in offices? What, what of it should you be using and not using? And then we have an amazing panel of people coming together to talk about diversity, not only cultural diversity, but also generational diversity in the workplace and specifically in publishing. How do we, how do we deal with, with uh, embracing more diversity and making sure that uh, our workplaces and also the, the, the books that we publish uh, reflect a more diverse world. So those those two sets of workshops are going to be really great, and, and that's where people can really roll their sleeves and get involved in a discussion and, and, and really participate even more than just sitting and hearing some amazing people speak. Well, this really sounds like a blast. I mean, uh, and it's, it's an amazing. It's a one-day event, March 6th from 9 to 5. You yep. get it all there. <laughs> Definitely. Thanks, Carl. Always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for talking with us. My pleasure, Mark. Thanks very much. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com.
I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with another fantastic author. We'll have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. But in the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for brand new episodes, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 